Becky and I are thankful to be back with you, and we deeply appreciate the prayers and the encouragement, um, especially for uh, our time in the, in the States. It was a very productive time in that we were able to help our dad get his house ready to, to sell and take care of some things that were much needed and uh, allows us to, to be here now that some of those things are taken care of. So we appreciate your prayers. Um, also appreciate those who filled in and did an amazing, amazing job, and now you're stuck with me, so there you go. Let's take a look at the book of James. We're going to explore this incredible book and uh, over the next few weeks, and, and I, 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 I want to give you this advance advisory. If you take it to heart, James will mess with you. You will, you will be upset, you will be frustrated because James is written in such a way that it's incredibly practical. It has lots of just direct imperative commands, do this, don't do that. James cuts right to the chase. He, he doesn't deal as much with some of the theology that's behind some of the things as he does just do the right thing thing. And sometimes that's hard to hear. At least it is for me. So we're going to begin exploring this, and I've entitled this series, The Biology of Faith, and as we go along, hopefully that'll make sense as to why I've chosen that as a series title. Um, But as we begin today, let's find out a little bit about this book, and we'll start with the who. Who is James? Well, the scripture reveals a number of different James in the New Testament, Um, but this particular James is um, the half-brother of Jesus. And so he would have had a very unique perspective on Jesus Christ because he knew him all of his life. He saw him as a child, he saw him as a teenager, he saw him in his ministry, he saw him in his crucifixion, He saw him in the resurrection. And how many of you have brothers and sisters? All right. How many of you would have a hard time believing if your brother or sister said they were the son or daughter of God? I would. Now, my brother and sister would would probably wonder, oh, maybe that could be if I said that about myself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. That is true. It would be a little hard. It'd be a little skeptical. Well, let's find out a little bit about it. The the first thing we need to understand is that James really is the half-brother of Jesus, and the Scripture tells us this. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Jesus is teaching in in Nazareth, and as he's teaching there... um, the leaders of the community, the leaders of the synagogue are a bit puzzled by what he's teaching. And this is what it says. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, which was Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? 
So this tells us that Jesus had at least four brothers that are named here and, and at least two sisters because it's plural. And so he had many siblings. Mary and Joseph went on to have children and it was a fairly large family. The brothers and sisters, as they grew up, would have seen the character and heart of Jesus revealed on a consistent basis. But he's still their brother. He's still the one who maybe seemed like the favorite at times, the one who never got in trouble. Did any of you have a sibling like that that never got in trouble? I have a sister who caused trouble all the time but never got in trouble. Somehow it always fell on me because usually she talked me into doing it. Okay, so that's, I mean, she was 10 years older than I am and I was gullible and I did really dumb things, uh, especially to my brother. Um, and he was way older than me and so it usually resulted in significant pain. Um, but it was worth it at the time, so it was good. They would, have, they would have seen everything about Jesus, but it still would have been difficult. In fact, John chapter 7, verse 5, tells us that at, uh, in at least up through the middle part of Jesus' ministry, his, his brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah. But something incredible happens to James. Look in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. After Jesus is crucified and um, is resurrected, he is there and makes appearances for a period of 40 days, and one of those appearances happens to be to his brother James. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the 12, the 12 disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James. So the resurrected Lord appeared to James and that changed everything. All the character he had seen when Jesus was growing up, came into sharp focus. He saw there was a difference about his brother that could not be explained by a difference in personality. There was something dramatically different. All of the teaching that he had heard came into focus when he saw Jesus risen from the dead. And from that point on, he is transformed so much that he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was a skeptic, but he was a very well-trained skeptic because he would have listened to all of Jesus' teachings. In fact, when we look at um, James as an outline, you can see that it follows the Sermon on the Mount very, very closely. That's the slide that's next about the what. What is he teaching? It teaches um, many of Jesus' points in the Sermon on the Mount. James 1 contains... Um, parallels to Matthew 5 and 7, and James 4 and 5 contain parallels to Matthew 7 and 5. He's picking up on the teachings of Jesus. 
but he's transformed by seeing the resurrected Lord. And his belief in Jesus was so strong that the church historian Eusebius gives us um, a lesson of what happened to James that his teaching, his proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah was so strong that eventually the leaders in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, took James up to the roof of the temple and threw him off the roof. And because that didn't kill him, they all then went back down the stairs, took out clubs, and beat him to death. All the while, he is saying the exact same words as Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the kind of faith and transformation that happened in James. And so he's writing this book with a great deal of background and understanding and he became a great leader. If you look at Acts chapter 15, you can do this on your, on your own, you'll see there that he was incredibly gifted in bringing people together as the body of Christ, in dealing with the differences between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. He was able to find common ground and bring them into unity because he had a heart and a passion to see people mature in their faith. And that's why this book was written. Everything that James deals with, deals with pointing us towards a mature faith in Jesus Christ. He deals with divisions. He deals with the tongue. He deals with jealousy. He deals with favoritism. All those things that are signs of immaturity in our life spiritually. And what James is calling us to is to quit being Believers who are focused on ourselves, quit being toddlers, and to grow up into Christ, to have a mature, living, vibrant faith that reflects the reality of who Jesus Christ is. James writes to believers scattered all across the known world, and he begins with trials, which seems a bit puzzling. If you're trying to really influence people, you don't generally want to start right out of the gate going, you need to be happy about the trials you're going through. Chances are you're not going to really grab their attention, but he cuts to the chase and says, listen, you need a change of perspective, a change of attitude, and so do I. Well, let's look at it. Let's begin. James chapter 1, verse 1. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, those who've been spread out over the known land, greetings. I want you to notice how James identifies himself. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, I'm the half-brother who happened to grow up um, next to Jesus all my life and you should be impressed with what I said. He says, no, I'm a servant. And in the original language, it's, it's even stronger than what we have here. It really means slave or bondservant. And it's a very powerful picture in the Greek language because a bondservant was someone who was not a slave because they owed a debt. That was how slavery often happened in biblical times, but someone who loved their masters so much that they gave themselves to them. In fact, I don't know if you, if you know this or not, 
But <laughs> you, you jumped ahead of where I was going. All right, how many of you have pierced ears? Okay, very good. Do you know where that comes from? It, it originally was not a sign of jewelry and fashion, just so you know. Originally, it was a sign of a bond slave. When you were a bond slave, when you chose to give your life in service to a master that you loved, the master would take your ear and put it on the doorpost of the house and use an awl and pierce through the ear. And it was a sign that you had committed your life to your master. That's a pretty cool picture, isn't it? Not just a fashion statement. It's a picture of devotion. And how appropriate it is in that picture uh, where it points to Jesus who was pierced for our sins. It's a powerful thing. That's how James is identifying himself. He's saying, I'm a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to find out more about this, you can read it in Exodus chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It gives the instructions about piercing the ear with the awe on the doorpost of a bond slave. It's a scriptural background. So James identifies himself, and then he says who he's writing to, and he says a simple word, greetings. But greetings really isn't powerful enough what we read in English. It, it is more than that. What he's saying is rejoice. What I'm telling you, what I want you to be able to do is when you hear these words, I want you to choose joy because it's going to change who you are. If you allow God's word and God's Holy Spirit to mature you and grow you in your faith in Christ, you are going to find incredible joy. So I'm telling you from the very beginning words, choose joy, and this is how you do it. That's what this means. Well, then he goes on, and I want you to, as we look at these verses 2 through 5, if, if, if you're okay and marking in your Bible, if, you, if you're one who likes to do that, I want to encourage you to, to underline four words in this passage. There are four action words that really bring this all together because they, they're progressive. They build on one another. The first one, and in my translation, I use the English Standard Version, um, the first word you see there in, in verse 2 is count. If you're using the NIV, it says consider, and that's, that's an okay word. I don't think it's as good of, uh, as count is, and I'll explain that in a minute. But I want to encourage you to underline count, and then look down in verse 3 and underline no, and then in verse 4, underline let, and in verse 5, underline the word ask. Now, let me read those, and then we'll, we'll put this into perspective. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. We see here the reason why he's telling us to do this is for our completion. The purpose of the letter of James is for you and I to fully become the masterpiece Jesus Christ created and saved you to be. Not just to 
have a comfortable life, but to have the character of Christ. And so he's beginning with a change in our attitudes. He says, count it all joy. The word count is an accounting term. It means to take inventory of what you're going through. It means that you evaluate your circumstance and you seek to understand, God, how do you want to use this to make me more like Jesus Christ? If we begin there, if we'll begin asking that question, when we have a difficult circumstance, maybe it's an illness, maybe it's trouble at work, maybe it's a a relationship that's broken, maybe it's grief that we're walking through. If we begin to take that to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I want to see how you want to use this in my life to complete me, to make me more like Jesus. It will transform us, and it's the first step to finding real joy. Now, in no way does this minimize the trials that we go through. Testing and trials and persecution hurt. None of us like them. Yet we will all meet them, but we have a choice in how we encounter them and how we deal with them. And ultimately, how we deal with trials reveals what we value most. If comfort is my highest value, trials will always upset me. But if we live for what matters most, becoming more like Christ, becoming mature in Him, we can see our trials and our difficulties through a whole different perspective. We can look past the fire and see a glimpse of the glory that comes through the flames. We can see what it's like to be transformed. We see this story over and over again in the Scriptures. Think of Joseph. He's he's sold into slavery by his brothers, The circumstances would have made absolutely no sense, and yet God was using those trials to prepare him, his time in prison, his time where he was desperately seeking the Lord, he was using those to prepare him to be the one who would be the provider and the rescuer for the very brothers that sent him into prison, sold him into slavery. Job, the biblical character of Job, is the same way. He endured unimaginable suffering, but his attitudes towards suffering is summed up in this way. He says in Job 23, verse 10, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job, even though he went through things that I can't even begin to understand how he endured them, He had the right perspective. He saw that God was working in the midst of the trial, even if he only saw it a little bit. And that is what God celebrated his life about. That's what transformed him. That's what ultimately gave him joy. And the greatest example in the scripture is Jesus. He endured the greatest trial, rejection, betrayal, beatings, the cross, bearing our sin. And it says he did so for the joy that was set before him. And that joy was you and I. James is calling us to have the same kind of viewpoint, the same kind of attitude, to value Christ's character over comfort to make those trials count for eternity 
to not just have them be a difficult circumstance, but to allow God to redeem them in transforming us and allow us to be a witness of his goodness, of his faithfulness, of his power to others. When trials come, my instinct, the instinct of my selfish flesh, is to cry out, God, take this away. Take away this sickness. Take away the conflict. Take away the struggle and the hurt. But in doing so, I may be asking for the very thing that is least helpful for my spiritual growth. So I want to challenge us to change the way that we pray in our own trials and praying for others who are going through them. I wrote out a prayer that I'm going to read to you and and maybe it will help put into words what I hope God's Spirit will speak into your own heart. How different would it be if I prayed something like this? Good Father, you know how I feel right now. You know the fear that surrounds me. I ask first for you to be with me in the midst of this trial. Make yourself known to me. And then make yourself known through me to those who do not yet know you or at least need to know you more. Lord, if possible, I ask that you take this away. But if this trial is for my good, please accomplish your purpose through it first. Don't let go of me until you've changed me. Then bring me through. I don't want to miss out on becoming more like Jesus Christ. I pray in his name and for his honor. Amen. I'm asking God to give me the courage to not just write those words, but to live them, to change my perspective on life. Well, that's the first step, is to count, to take an inventory, to look at our attitude towards the trials we're going through, and then the second step comes later on, and it's in the knowing. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. Knowledge, an understanding mind, is the next step, an understanding that God will use testing to make us stronger. Um, Felix, can I borrow you for a second? Yeah, yeah, come here. So um, would you take this here and would you just hold that out like that? Sweet. Faith is always tested. Every one of us is gonna go through trials and difficulties. And really, we're just gonna wait and see how long Felix can do this. Because um, it's a really, this is a test of his endurance and his faith. It, you know what? Actually, that's not, that's not really good. Let's change this out. <laughs> so try, try that one, Felix. See how you're doing. Yes! All right. All right, you can put it down. You can put it down. Okay, thank you. Thank you for being the illustration for today. Here's the deal. The only way that we get stronger physically is through testing. Now, Felix is already strong. 
But if he was to take those weights and every day use them day after day, lifting them up again and again, he's going to get even stronger. The same's true with us spiritually. Faith is the muscle upon which we lift up the glory and greatness of God in our lives. And the only way that it is going to get stronger, the only way that our faith is going to get stronger is if it goes through testing. Just like the muscles in your body will not get stronger on the couch in front of the TV. They won't. I've tried. <laughs> I have a, a regular regiment, a workout there, and it's, it seems to be going the other direction. I don't know why. But if they're exercised, it gets stronger. Our faith gets stronger. That's what he's telling us. Testing works for us, not against us. It produces steadfastness. God's purpose in trial is to help us grow into maturity. Now, one of the keys to uh, to really understanding Scripture, especially the words of the Old Testament, is a principle called first use. And I'm going to run out of time like I almost always do, so we're going to cut this short, but I, I want you to see this part of this at least. Um, Hebrew scholars, when they want to understand the context of a word, what they do is they go and they look in the Scriptures to see the first time that word is used. An example would be love. What is God's definition of love? Well, if we really want to know it, all we have to do is go to the very first time the word love appears in the scripture, and it appears in Genesis chapter 22. Now, you would, you would think, man, that's all, 22 chapters. That's kind of a long time before God mentions love. But when he mentions it, it is very specific because God in the context is giving us his definition of love. And he, he does so in Genesis 22 when he's addressing Abraham and he says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your only son whom you love, Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice to me. You see, that's important because God's definition of love is always connected to sacrifice. You see, in the very first use of the word love, God is setting the stage for John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, so that whoever would believe on him might not perish but have everlasting life. The first use gives us God's definition. The same is true. The same passage gives us the first usage of the word worship in the scripture. And it's linked to obedience in Abraham's willingness to follow through and obey the Lord's command. Now the Lord stopped him and Abraham prophetically speaks this incredible, incredible word because Isaac asks the question, Father, I see the fire, I see... Um, I see the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham answers back, God will provide himself the lamb. You see, the use of love and sacrifice was prophetic, pointing to the cross when Jesus Christ would be offered as a sacrifice for our sins. Well, the first use of the word faith, you would think, maybe comes from the same passage because Abraham's the father of faith. But actually, the first use of the word, the Hebrew word for faith, doesn't occur 
until the next book in Exodus. I want you to look at it. Exodus chapter 15. It's kind of, excuse me, Exodus chapter 17. In the Hebrew word for faith is imuna. That's a form, and in it, some of its other forms are faithfulness or steadfastness. Um, but it's an interesting word, and here's what, it, here's what it says. Let me read the passage to you. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill where Moses held up his hand, uh, excuse me, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so that his hands were steady. That word that's translated in English, steady there in Hebrew is the word faithful. It's the first time it appears in the Old Testament. Faithful. So that he was faithful until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now why is that significant? It's significant because faith is always connected not to what we know, but how we live out with perseverance and endurance a faithful life. Ultimately, I think God chose this picture for a very important reason. If I would have made Felix continue to hold that up there for a while, and we would have, you know, because it's kind of like a picture of what's happening here. Moses is holding his staff, but he's holding it not for a few seconds or a few moments, but for hours while a battle's going on. And, and the staff, even though it's not that heavy, Moses is kind of old, and he's getting weary. Now, we have this picture in our mind of Moses. Go to the one before that. This is the picture we have of Moses. It comes from Cecil B. DeMille's um, The Ten Commandments. Like Moses is this strong, mighty guy. He's an old geezer by this time. I mean, he's older than me. He's ancient. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and we think he's ready to go. But no, he's, he's come to the end of himself. Look at the next picture. This is what really happened is there he is, an old man. He's sitting on the stone and Aaron and her two men are helping hold him up because he's come to the end of his own strength. And ultimately, that's what faith is. A mature faith is learning to fully rely on God rather than ourselves. And yes, it brings forth the frog. Okay, so now you're going to remember this cheesy little acronym, frog, fully rely on God. Okay? We all need to have frog faith. I know it's cheesy, but you're going to remember it, and that's what counts. So say it with me. Fully rely on God. That's what he wants us to do. He wants to build in us that kind of faith, that kind of steadfastness, 
That's the picture James would have had in mind when he's talking about when you count it all joy and when you know that testing produces perseverance or steadfastness and steadfastness leads to being complete and perfect in Christ, that's the picture he would have had in mind because that's the Jewish understanding of what faith is. It's fully relying on God and not on ourselves. That's why The scripture tells us the righteous are to live by faith. Well, let me wrap this up with this. I've named this series The Biology of Faith because most of us only have half of that in our life. Biology is a compound word from from the Latin bio meaning life and logi meaning knowledge. For many of us, faith is what we know. I believe a set of beliefs, of values, that's my faith. But that's not the biblical understanding of faith. Faith is what we live. It is the bio. That's what we are to have. That's what James is telling us. He's saying, it's what I want you to do, what I'm calling you to do is to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Not only have a knowledge of the word, but to live it out, to fully rely on God, become mature, and allow him to take even the trials of our life to transform us. That's that next word, let. It's a surrendered will. We're allowing God to work in the midst of our circumstances to change us. We're gonna put a bookmark in it right there. But my prayer for you and I is that we'll take this to heart and that God will help us to look at our circumstances, our trials, our suffering, the things that we don't like about life and allow him to use that to build our life on a new foundation, a foundation of his love, of his truth, of his power, and of fully relying on him. When we have that perspective, that's when we can claim the words out of Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because I have the right attitude, I have the right understanding, I have a surrendered will, and I'm fully relying on God. Heavenly Father, would you take the truth of your word And Lord, would you allow it to sink deep into us? Challenge us, Lord, so that we don't live here the same. Lord, you want to make us more like you. And as we become more like you, we experience your presence and your joy in ways that are indescribable. So grow us, Lord. We ask that you would build our life on you. In Christ's name, amen.